welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, students, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. I would like to elevate and give a platform to educators and people that have been in the education system to inject the humanity and heart back into education. If you'd like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at EducatingLaura. Deciding to spend some time with me today on Monday, the 22nd of Feb. I have a great conversation today with Maddie. She is known as the VCAL teacher on Instagram, and I have done a live with her already, and I think I've mentioned that in previous episodes. So we talk all things VCAL, we talk about learning styles, she talks about being, and I say it in inverted commas, a bit of a naughty student and what that has done in terms of informing her own teaching. We also talk about how passionate she is about Indigenous culture and implementing that in the curriculum and being quite a warrior, I suppose, in ensuring that we understand our own history and teaching our children and our students the truth about Australian history. And as I'm recording this, I've just come off the back of a recording with Claire on Teachers Talk Texts, which is a podcast primarily focused on VCE texts, although she did say to me that she's thinking about expanding that repertoire for herself. And we just discussed Women of Troy. And I have been on the So Little Time podcast with the beautiful girls, Ellie and Hannah, who are doing so much analysis and great content for VCE students. And it was actually the first podcast that I ever recorded. So I'm very excited to be discussing Women of Troy with Claire. And it's a funny story because I haven't technically taught Women of Troy. I've just tutored it. And I do have some resources out on TPT as well if you're a teacher or student. I had a really lovely week this week and I would just like to tell you one story about my year 12. So my year 12s have their creative coming up and at our school we refuse to edit or draft their drafts. So it means that they really have an opportunity to discuss their drafts so that we can give them some pointers. And then from there, it is really up to them to construct their own piece. And so I allowed the students to do some peer assessment. And it was Friday afternoon. I have my year 12s, the last two periods of the day. It was really, really hot on Friday here in Melbourne, nearly 35 degrees. And these kids worked so well together. I put them into groups of four and I walked around and listened to the conversations and they were just so generous with their feedback. And then I got them to implement that feedback by putting it into their draft or reshaping their draft. And many of them then asked for feedback from people who were not in their group. And this is what I love about teaching seniors, how much they take it seriously, how they want to help one another. And I just love at the moment that there's no competition within the group and I'm just really excited to teach them and I think it's going to be really, really nice year. So on that note, I would like for you, if you are enjoying all the content, to please subscribe, rate and review, send this episode to somebody if you think that they would like it because Maddie is just a wealth of knowledge and just calls it as it is. So there are, I will say, disclaimer, there is some discussion about drug use and some really heavy topics that have come up with 
her students. So be aware that there may be some trigger points for you. And I would also like to say that Maddie works at a VCE only school, which means that obviously her advice is for students 16 and above. And I would say that you need to ensure that you are following always your school's protocols and ensuring that you're not putting yourself in any precarious situation and that you are always protected by your school and by the department with any calls, decisions and advice that you give. Hello, Maddie. So nice to see you again. Hi, how are you going? Thanks for having me. Pleasure. I'd love to start at the beginning and ask what kind of student you were. So I was a very naughty student. I was very outspoken and, you know, I I feel like that didn't really fit so much with the type of school that I was at. You kind of did what you're told, but I definitely didn't do that. I never listened. I didn't really do any work. It wasn't until probably VCE that I really started doing anything. I don't know. The only way I can think of myself is one of those really naughty kids who just does not do what they're told, is doing whatever they want, rude, obnoxious. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's about all I could say. And if you think about that behaviour and why you're behaving that way, can you identify any reasons as to why you decided to be that person and to behave that way, considering you're now not, (laughs) you know, perhaps outspoken, yes, but you know, you're not rude, you're not disrespectful. In fact, you're incredibly empathetic and compassionate. So why do you think you behaved that way at school? Yeah. So I've really thought a lot about it. It makes sense because being a teacher, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to be a teacher was to do what I feel like wasn't happening at my school and in hindsight I think I've got some reflections on it at the time one of the main reasons was and my mum was quite strict at home you know just around wasn't allowed to swear which is fine but if anyone that knows me I swear a lot but also other things just around she was you know always wanting to protect me and that came out as quite a strict upbringing from her and given my personality I was finding that I was coming to school and what I wasn't saying at home you know those like thoughts or that kind of being outspokenness I don't think that's a word but anyway that was really coming out at school and I had that I was very fiery and I still am but it was my opportunity to sort of let that out And I've actually got a really funny story of when I was in maybe year nine or something like that, one of my teachers said, oh, I could not imagine what you'd even be like at home. And my friends were like, she's actually really well behaved at home and she doesn't talk back. Like I did not talk back to my mum at all. And she was really shocked. Like she was a teacher who had taught me, or she ended up teaching me almost every year since year seven. So I knew her really well and she knew me really well. And she was really surprised to hear that I was so different at home. And, you know, I remember saying, well, this is my place where I can actually sort of let that out. Not that that's a good thing. I look back and think, you know, those poor teachers. Another thing is I constantly was having reports of distracted, can't concentrate, distracts others, um, not focused. And I really struggled to sit there. I mean, you've been on the live with me, you saw, and I'm constantly moving around. Like I can't keep still really. 
and I would really struggle. You know, I understood the work, not maths. Maths is a different story. Yeah. But I really struggled to sit there and do it, even though I understood the, the content. And, you know, it was things like oral presentations that I always got A plus, you know, I got the best scores for that because I love to write and I love to talk. And it was a way to actually show how well I could go if they just had adapted things to the way I had was learning. So now that I look back as well, it definitely was a personality thing too. You know, I just, I loved to be the center of attention, you know, and even now, like I love the spotlight and I love getting up in front of my kids and telling stories now as a teacher and doing all that and sit down, be quiet, take the notes didn't work for that part of me Mm. you know when I was in year seven my dad actually was deployed to Iraq to to be in the war and that had a really detrimental impact on me I'm really close with my dad and I always have been and he was gone for eight months I actually didn't live with him he lived in Darwin but I would always go up in the holidays yeah and so that was eight months that I didn't see him I couldn't call him and I had to wait for the calls and I went through a bit of a dark stage where I was like constantly going to the sick bay and wanting to sleep and I'd come home and I'd want to go to sleep. And I was just really missing my dad and really scared and worried. I only would have been 13. And that was also contributing to my acting out as well because I wasn't in a great headspace. Mm. Also, you know, I mean, probably delve for hours into what was going on for me at that time. And my mum even told a teacher, look, this is what's happened. Her dad's in Iraq. And one of the teachers was like, oh, okay, that actually explains a lot. And then nothing even happened or changed. Mm. And I know now that a lot of what I was doing was a cry for help, calling out or, or being aggressive or not doing anything, not sitting still. It was a bit of a cry for help to say, you know, I'm struggling and I can't sit here and just do this work. Socially as well, definitely outspoken people tend to make enemies. Mm. Um, And that was the case for me always, you know, so I had- Especially at high school. High school so much about fitting in and being- what everybody else is and God, I wish I could have been more authentic in high school. So I think good on you, Maddie, to be honest. Thank you. Well, you know, I I look back and it was tough because, you know, often people didn't like me because of that. Mm. Um, And I would, you know, leave feeling, oh, you know, I wish I wasn't so, well, I feel like the word sassy didn't even exist back then. Yeah, yeah. So, certainly you know, some was, more positive terms to describe an assertive woman than there would have been yeah. perhaps when we were at school, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There was pretty much only one way to describe what, like, at that time. And, you know, that's kind of that reputation that I had. But I had so many things going on that, you know, now I look back and think, oh, my mm. gosh, like, if, if I had that student in front of me, I would really hope that I would pick up on that Mm. and go, okay, clearly something's not right. It was one of those ones where I wasn't, I was quite strong academically, Mm. not, you know, the top of the class purely because I didn't do any work (laughs) and I couldn't focus. But I did have those abilities 
And so it wasn't like, oh, she's disengaged because she doesn't get it. Again, maths, different story. Mm -hmm. But I was great at science. I was great at English. And those humanities type subjects, I understood it. But I just, I didn't want to do any of the work. And I was focused on a million other things. So yeah, I do also just think, you know, I still to this day, like in staff meetings, and anytime I really have to do something that I don't see value in, not that all staff meetings don't have value, but you know what I mean? Like those, but they, won't those be, they won't all be targeting you, Maddie. Yeah. And yeah. also sometimes you're like, I feel like this could be an email, but anyway, yes. um, you know, I do check out and it's really funny because the people that work close to me know how hardworking I am and know how dedicated I am, but they also know. So like there's certain times of the day to organize a meeting with me and they also know when I'm really distracted and especially when we were doing a lot of the Zoom stuff, I'd have to go, oh, could, we just, could you just repeat that? And they would like laugh and they would know that it was because I wasn't listening. Mm. And I'm like notorious for not writing things down and not listening. Like it's really funny because clearly aside from what was going on, innately that's who I am. You know, I'm, yes. really, I'm really easily distracted and I struggle to concentrate unless I'm really, I see the task as truly valuable or something I have control over. So it's great now that my colleagues kind of love that about me in a way, because I'm really honest about it. It's interesting, isn't it? That those things come through. And then I guess it's a combination of different things as to why I was acting that way. There's three things that I've picked that I want to talk about. So I'll name the three things and you can decide what one you address first. The first thing is the idea of sitting behind a desk in a classroom not being the right format for many students. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on perhaps a better way that we could set classrooms up or perhaps a way that you think we could be doing that better. The other thing I wanted to mention was the fact that you were sort of seen as a behavior rather than a human. And there was obviously so many things going on behind the surface. And also, even as that individual, you didn't know what was going on at the time. So it just goes to show as adults and responsible adults, how important our role is to support the students because, you know, they're maturing, their brains are not fully developed yet. And I don't mean to say that in a condescending way. It's just the reality. So even as a teenager, I reflect on my own behavior and what I was thinking and feeling. And I couldn't have come to the adult understanding that I have now. So especially teachers in high school, we have a real responsibility to support the students because even though they're the ones going through it, they may not necessarily have that cognitive ability to deconstruct it and analyze it and understand exactly what's going on. So those behaviors, as you say, are symptomatic of something perhaps much greater that we do have a responsibility to support, delve into, ask questions. Mm -hmm. And the third thing I was going to say to you was, I love that you're really open about the fact that there are certain times of the day that don't suit you. There is some kind of thing that's out at the moment that talks about this, the three types of people in terms of how productive they are in the day. One's an owl, and I know that because that's me. I kind of exist in the morning. I'm not very good at being creative. I can kind of just get things done, but everything I have to do in the morning has to be created and set at <laughs> least the night before because I'm right. much more creative at night. Really? And so. Yeah. And so you're saying too that there, you've got dips in your productivity as well. And I know for me, yeah, during the day, mm-hmm. I will perhaps do marking at school. I'll do photocopying at school. Very rarely will I create a resource 
in the middle of the day because for me it's not when I'm creative and so I think that we expect our students to be on from what eight thirty to three fifteen. Yeah. When yeah. they might actually be incredible workers, really creative at two in the morning. And again, I'm not saying that that's ideal, but mm. I did teach a student once. She was the ducks in the end of oh, wow. the year, and she admitted to me that she would do most of her study at two thirty in the morning. Oh wow. And I was like, isn't that bad? And she said, no, because I I nap in the afternoon. So she was really autonomous over her own study. She knew exactly when she worked best. She structured her own timetable. And I remembered her doing practice exams. I had her for biology. And she was doing a university course in biology at the time as well. She was super, super clever. Mm -hmm. And I remember her doing the practice exam. She got 75% or something. And Mm -hmm. I said to her, you could do better than this. And she's like, yeah, but it wasn't really a good use of my time. I wanted to ensure that I didn't want to study for that because it wasn't really that important. So she was very aware of where to put her time, where to put her effort and how to utilize her own body clock. Yeah, that's good. And I don't think we talk about that very often. And I mean, I was always shamed, get to bed, go to bed. I'm like, I'm actually better off at night as a kid. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, in, in psychology in year 12 in Victoria, we actually do look at that. Yeah, that's and, cool. And yeah, so we look at the delayed melatonin release for adolescents, which as a bio teacher, I'm sure yes. you have heard about. Yes. Um, and then yeah. we look at the different reasons why, essentially why school should not, for teenagers, should not start as early as it does. What's the research regarding school times? What should it be? So, well, the idea is that, okay, so if melatonin, and for those that don't know, that's the chemical in the brain responsible for us feeling sleepy and it's triggered by external cues predominantly light yes so in the brain there is the suprachiasmic nucleus look at me go and that detects say let's go with light the lighter it is the lower the levels of melatonin the darker it is the higher the levels of melatonin so you know, that's why they sort of say, don't go on your phone before you go to sleep yes. because that light from your phone is actually keeping you awake. So it's about their mid-teen, you know, around that 15, 16 mark. That release of melatonin is delayed by one to two hours. Oh. So that means that they're falling asleep later. This is why when parents are like, you need to go to bed, it's actually really hard for them to fall asleep before 12 o'clock. And then the other research comes into social commitments like texting friends or being on social media or catching up with friends. Also work, you know, they might start having part-time jobs or they have to work until 11 o'clock. And then other psychological things like wanting to stay up late because bedtimes are associated with being young you know, and being told what to do. So there's, there's all this research around that. And then I guess one of the conclusions that can be drawn, that's what, you know, we've, we look at in my class is, okay, if we know all of this, what does that say about school? Well, yeah, perhaps school should for, you know, teenagers, it probably should be starting after 10 o'clock. You know, but if you're going to, I can't see any teacher wanting to work till, you know, six. Um, I mean, do anyway, but actually being in the classroom i mean maybe you would be all right laura because you're a bit of a night owl but i would i also like to create alone maddie so it's a bit of an oxymoron i don't want to be doing all of that stuff in the you know i still want my alone time at night yeah for sure (laughs) 
I mean, I think about it, I'm like, because I, yeah, I thrive in the mornings. Like, yeah. I'm one of those people where, like, I do love coffee, but I rarely have to drink it. Like, I'm, I'm tired, don't get me wrong, but I'm actually more likely to be tired later on. Yeah. Like, I'm, fr- I, and even as a kid, even as a teenager, aside from, like, when I finish school, but that's more to do with the fact that you're, like, I can stay up till 4am because I don't have to be anywhere. Yeah. I was always, my sister hated it. I was awake at 7am when she was asleep till nine and I'd be like, wake up. Like I was so bored. And I've just always been a morning person, but you know, most kids, that's not the case. I don't think I was ever accidentally late for school. Right. From yeah. sleeping in because I was late for other reasons, perhaps like I just chose not to Feel go. purposefully late, never accidentally. Yeah, purposely yeah. late. Like I was like, I'm going to do this instead. Yeah. But I was never actually, I don't think I ever slept in, which yeah. is rare for a teenager. And, you know, that's something that's pretty common now as well. You know, and then it's one of those things like how could we possibly accommodate everyone? Funny, isn't it? Because primary school tends to start later than high school and it actually should be the op- opposite way. Yeah. I'm thinking too, just as you're talking, obviously there's, there's a few conflicts with this thing. You've got kids that want to stay up later that don't want to get to school till 10 o'clock. You've got teachers that want to be done at 3.30. They've had enough. Plus also there's often people that have kids at school and things like that. And they've got other commitments. My wonder is after doing all of this remote learning, mm. I've always loved the idea of flipping the classroom, whether or not there's a possibility of the contact hours being less, but much more useful. Yeah. And so yeah. like when you're in class, it's always an activity, a prac, the things that the teacher has to be there for. And yeah. then whenever the theory stuff that they could be either watching on a video that you not, might not necessarily have to be there for. I mean, how many times have you, have you been in a class where you've lectured and mm. there's been very little discussion? I mean, you don't really need to be in real time with the kids for that. You could actually yeah. record that video and then they come in and the discussion happens then after they've watched it or, yeah. you know, they read that theory and they come in and there's an activity based on that theory I'm wondering whether or not, you know, you could have contact hours being 10 to three, but really, really hands-on, I don't want to say performative, but real teacher-driven, activity-based, community-based work. And then the rest of it, the theory that could be done through, you know, whatever study method they liked, video, reading texts, that's then posted, can be done in the morning if they're morning kids, in the evening, Mm. the night before if they're evening kids, as long as they're prepped. And that way it's much more productive time with the teacher with your classmates and it also fits the time frame and I mean teachers would still be there at eight o'clock because you have to be doing prep Mm. we're okay with that I think yeah and those teachers that don't aren't there at eight o'clock in the morning will be there till five o'clock because there are teachers that do that too in theory wonderful (laughs) and and at a school you know I don't work at a school where that would work okay so explain that to me yeah so what I mean is is like there are kids who would do it, right? And it's it's how people go. As a student, I was amazing and I did all my work. Yeah. I'd love to have a room full of myself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you don't have a room full of yourself. And yeah. there are some schools where you do have a room full of that. But I certainly have never worked there. Yeah. And for those, you know, for some cl- schools, that flipped classroom idea would be amazing. 
But at my school, it wouldn't work. At many schools, it wouldn't work. You know, if we think about, do they have a quiet space at home? Do they even have a laptop? Like, you know, that whole conversation about the impact that COVID had on Mm. students from different backgrounds, et cetera. I think if I wasn't there to actually talk to them, Mm. they would not watch it. And I had this problem, unfortunately, in remote learning because in the first round, I decided to record my lectures. Yep. They watched it. Then they logged in and then we'd have a discussion. But when they were logging in, barely any had watched it. So they Mm. didn't even know what I was talking. I said, does anyone have any questions? No. Okay, cool. So I was like, all right, this isn't working. For the round two, I didn't record them. I said to be marked present, you need to actually be there, listen to me and ask at least one question before logging off. And that was, look, that was my school. And there were kids that in the first round, they did watch it and they did come on and they did do the coursework and they did the daily tasks that they had to do. Mm. But for majority, it wasn't like that. So, you know, and I was the same at uni. If it wasn't compulsory to go, I wouldn't go. Yes. (laughs) See, I didn't change as a student the whole time. I was always like that. I've only ever been like hardworking as a worker, not as a student. A lot of kids do need the threat of attendance. It sounds terrible, but they do. And, you know, I have kids, I've had kids who do pretty much no work, but, you know, they've got a lot of wellbeing issues and the fact that they're alive and at school is really important. And, you know, sometimes in their tests or like even sometimes they'll chime in. I know that they've heard something that I've said. Yeah. That's at least important. I remember you said when we were on our live, Mm. you know, it's not just about what's going to be on the test, but everything we do is valuable. And even if it's a life lesson or a moral or like I just spoke about understanding why teenagers aren't going to sleep early, like anything like that, I think is really important for them. And if they weren't in the class, I just don't think many of them would actually do it. So yeah. It's a really valid point. And I love the fact that we're literally in real time having this conversation about education that is the problem. You can Mm -hmm. identify research-based situations in which you can remedy but there's mm. always a flip side. There's always something else to consider. And that's why education in the system that is education is deeply flawed and doesn't yeah. fit everybody because we think, oh, there's a hole there. We'll plug it with this, but that springs another hole. And that's the biggest problem. And I think that it's also why educators need to sit at the table to make these decisions because we are the ones in the classroom you're the one, I didn't do much remote teaching. I was sort of thrown into it within, you know, for like six weeks or something at the end of the year. And you're right. Like I had an expectation of what I thought was achievable mm. in that, a 45 minute lesson, which was not at all, you know, something I would set in 45 minutes live in class, they might've done 15 minutes of that at home. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. And I think that these are the conversations and these perspectives that need to be heard because we think, well, if they go to school, why aren't they learning? Yeah. Well, there's so many reasons. There is the mm. melatonin part that you were just talking about before. There is the fact that some of them are half asleep through most of the day. There is a problem that perhaps at home they don't have an opportunity or a safe space to learn. Maybe the yeah. technology isn't available. There's so many aspects that make learning really challenging. And yeah. we as teachers are aware of that. But for whatever solution I could offer, there's always a counter. And that's what makes it so hard. 
Yeah, for sure. It's yeah, it's so individual, isn't it? Of the students, the schools, everything. Yeah. And I mean, I think that we've just, you know, made a comment about why certain elements of university don't work because university is you go to a lecture or you listen to a lecture and you go to a tutorial. If Mm. you don't want to listen to someone talking at you, well, that's an issue. If you don't want to engage in tutorials because you're shy or introverted or whatever, well, that's potentially an issue. If you can't get to the university by a certain time for whatever commitment you have, Mm. that's an issue. And there's so much around self-starting at university that if you don't see the value, Maddie, like you said, it's really hard to get up in the morning and get to that lecture or that shoot. So. Oh yeah. And you know, some people, like I'm one of those people, I'm a worker Mm. and I, not like in my part-time jobs or anything purely because I didn't actually see the value in it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I, I was just always like that. And then at school, you know, the things I really loved, I was so interested in and I would work out like the oral presentations or anything like that. But yeah, kids aren't going to be involved in that and they're not going to be interested in that if they aren't interested in that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just kind of that simple. So I did bring up before the idea of changing the classroom setup for yeah. you as a student or for students like you what would be a better way to set up a classroom to minimise perhaps that distraction or to increase concentration? Do you mean physically? Yeah. Or, all right. Look, I'm really against cluster tables. Okay. Is this what you kind of mean? Like yeah. Yeah. actual classroom looks. I really can't stand the class, the cluster tables unless they're in a way where no one has their back to you. So in yep. my class, the kids hate it. They're not allowed. I don't let them sit in cert, on certain parts of the table. Mm-hmm. Like, but I can just turn around and see. And I'm like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Facing me and listening to everything I say. But so it depends on the space of the room, how that's set out. Um, You know, I've got one room where I do have the clusters, but only because the room is so wide Mm -hmm. that otherwise you've got these like rows that are also just, yeah. Yes. I don't think the rows are effective. I really love that U shape. Yeah. I thought, I think the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. The U and then with some in the middle to Mm. me, that's the best, but you've got to have a long room for that. Yes. Um, isn't it funny that we, we can think about these things and it's something that actually impacts us? I remember I was in a particular biology space and there were two desks together just in like there were three rows. And yeah. it made my life really hard because I had to kind of be, excuse me, pardon me, to get to everybody, which I hate. Yeah. I couldn't see yeah. everybody because the kids at the back were blocked, obviously, by the kids at the front. So yeah. I shifted it into a U and I would actually mm-hmm. teach in the middle of the U like yeah. you know, this like round theater and I could see everyone, I could get to everyone, but it was such a wasted space because all in the center of the U, yeah. I couldn't really do much with that. So I don't know. I felt that it wasn't, it was the best way to teach. So I could see everybody. It was interactive, but then there was this huge wasted space within the room. I did mm. have this sort of flexible learning space that the school created as a kind of, I don't know, was like a trial And they had like a whole whiteboard wall. They had a big blackboard wall. They had a big green screen section. They had three TVs that kids could connect their laptops into. We had cluster tables. They had bean bags, desks with like whiteboards. You could write write all over the desks. And I would always go in there for revision 
Mm. And I would say to the kids, you can revise however you like. So some of them would be plugging their laptops in to watch YouTube videos. Some of them would be, you know, recreating like a TV show with a green screen. Some of them would be, you know, writing their notes all over the board, but they'd be standing up rather than sitting down. And I loved watching them because none of them were doing the wrong thing ever because they, I just think they felt so excited to be able to use a space however they wanted to. And there was no rules in there other than obviously be respectful Mm. And they could just study however they wanted. And I think that it created this real excitement. So I think we're not quite there yet as to how to do it. But I think just the tables and chairs and a whiteboard, there's got to be other ways. On one of my live streams that I was on with Mitch, we were talking about, I think his handle is Mr. Layton's Little Learners, maybe. I'd have to double check that. I'll put put Um, the info in the show notes. I'll put the live in the show notes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we were talking about brain breaks. So we do the Berry Street model at my school. And in that, we were talking about, you know, it doesn't work with all classes. Like my health class loved the brain breaks the most. And some others were like, I just want to do the work. And yeah. this is annoying. But brain breaks are good. You know, just get up, refresh yourself, them like them a little bit, and then go back to sitting down. Because, you know, we can't argue with the importance of not chalk and talk per se, but a little bit of that, like, here's what you need to know. One of my colleagues a few years ago, he decided that he would give the kids about 30 minutes at the start of the lesson to take the notes and then he would just talk through it. And I adapted it to my room. I wouldn't go back, honestly. So depending on the length of the lesson, so my slides all have a little symbol. So if it's the pencil, they know to write unless it's written in colour. So, you know, we train them up right from the get-go of what they do and don't have to write. So they get 30 minutes generally. Sometimes for bigger lessons, you know, I give 45. Sometimes in the morning I'm like, you know what? You're tired, I'm tired. Quite a lot of people aren't here yet. That happens a lot. Let's have, you know, an hour or let's... I mean, we have big double... Every class is a double period, 110 minutes. So I have the ability to do that, luckily. Mm but I would not go back. Mm. It is the best thing. And it's kind of like linking to what we were talking about before, where it actually gives kids an opportunity to wake up, to write the notes, but also like have a coffee, have some breakfast. Again, I know at many schools, they're not allowed to eat or drink in class, but yeah, take that time. And then when we actually do go through the slides, I go laptops down, Mm. listen to me. Mm. You know, the only time I should see your laptop up or you writing is if I've said something brilliant, which of course is all the time. (laughs) Um, But I'm like, you know, and write that down, you know, as a little note or something, but otherwise, and it's been the best for distraction. Because, you know, I mean, we never had computers in school. Like we had computers. We didn't have laptops. No, not our own personal device. No, no. not our own. Gosh, no, like that didn't happen. Mm. I mean, if, if any of my friends did have their own laptop at school, they went to like a private school or something like yeah. that. Yeah, so that helps minimise distraction because, you know, you've got Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, whatever it is that could just, anything that could distract them. Mm. And so once I say, all right, down, and now you actually listen. And it's been really good and the kids quite like it. Every year they report going, wow, this is so much better. Because I was just finding, I'd be like standing up the front, waiting. All right, oh, no, 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 don't change it. I haven't finished yet. 
Mm. And I just got so sick of it. And then, yeah, when my colleague came up with this idea, I was stoked. Like it was just the best thing we could have done. Mm. And yeah, it's just been great. The kids know what to expect. We even ran pretty much remote learning the same, Mm. you know, do this, come in, we go through it and then you have time to do work. So structure is important. I think even for those kids that probably aren't even going to do the work anyway, they always want to know what's coming Yeah. Um, because sometimes what can actually escalate poor behaviour is feeling out of control of a situation or feeling like you don't know what's next. Mm. And I've had really good feedback from my students to say, we always know how the class is going to run. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes it's going to be a bit different where it's going to be like, okay, we're doing this or something a little bit different is happening. But mostly they know. You come in, you've got minimum 30 minutes to take the notes. Then we're going to go through it. Then you'll have time to do the work that is associated with the lesson. I'd love to ask you about the school that you're at because it's not a standard high school. Mm, It certainly isn't. I mean, it's still mainstream, so it's still considered a mainstream school. But I like to say it it has an alternative approach. Mm -hmm. So it's senior only, you're 11 and 12, and we offer VC and VCAL. And we offer a range of different subjects, pretty much all the arts, lots of humanities. In terms of science and maths, we offer all of the subjects, but maths is still big. But other than psychology, the sciences don't have great numbers, although we've got our biggest biology cohort ever. Oh, Oh, yeah, good. Um, Yeah, so that's really cool. We're we're stoked about that because for psych... When we have lots of bio kids, they pretty much always do psychology and they're great psych students, bio. It's such a good combo, isn't it? Bio works really well with psych and PE, I find. Yeah. There's a lot of great crossover. You don't have PE? Okay. No, I know. That's so funny. We actually don't have PE. We don't even have an oval or anything. Okay. Um, We don't really have a sporty variety of student. Yeah. So tell me about the students that attend your school. Yeah. So kids come from all over the place, really. We have so many different postcodes represented. We have kids coming who, you know, have disengaged from schools for a number of reasons, bullying, school refusal, illness anything and they they feel that the previous school isn't accommodating for them or they they can't maybe there's a lot of pressure at some other schools that we don't perhaps put on students we have kids come because they want to have blue hair and they can't have that at their other school so we don't have uniform I go by my first name we all go by our first names no one is miss or mister or anything and I understand for some people that's a barrier that they don't like or they like to have that barrier there I couldn't imagine being miss again like it would be so strange to be called that and we also have the most wonderful and probably biggest queer community of any school in this in the state of Victoria I would say got so many different trans students and their their preferred names and their preferred pronouns are all accepted and we make a big effort to call them by the name of their choice and the pronouns of how they identify. Um, That includes they and that includes if when they first arrived at the school, they were she and then they finally felt comfortable to actually be open with who they are. And then we will call them a different name and we will change the pronouns that we use for them. Yeah, it's just a really safe and amazing place. We 
honestly have barely any bullying incidents. If there is anything like that, it's handled really quickly. You know, I know a lot of people that I've heard from struggle, they feel like sometimes bullying at their school is not handled in the way that they would like, Mm. not just from kids, but from teachers, you know, it can be hard to sort of deal with that, but not at our school. It's just a really safe space. We get kids that, you know, are absolutely brilliant. We don't just, sometimes my my friends think, oh, oh, but you've just got troubled kids. And I'm like, Mm. no, I don't. I have some of them, the most intelligent, hardworking, well-adjusted, you know, healthy young people that I've ever come across at our school. And, And you know what? Even if they do have mental health issues, they're still not troubled. Yeah, you know, so, I could um, say the majority yeah. of schools would have a large component of students that had some kind of mental health challenge oh, issue, yeah. whatever you want to call it. And really? it's funny, isn't it, that already you're getting some kind of brand around your yeah. school that, oh, they're oh, just the troubled kids. Yeah, definitely the mental health school or... Wow. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, like we do have some issues with drugs and alcohol for sure, but as do a lot of schools, really. Thing is that many students feel that they have to leave their current school. And when they do go somewhere else, it makes sense that kids who aren't kind of welcome at their school go to the same place. Mm. But I love it. I mean, it's hard work. Don't get me wrong. It's exhausting sometimes, but yeah, it's really good. So that's the, the context of where I'm working. You put a post up recently about the idea of harm minimization. And I think you were speaking about it in regards to like the health curriculum, but obviously in a school with such a diverse range of issues, backgrounds mm. and identities, mm. harm minimization would be a really important part of your job. So can you explain what that is, how you go about it? Yeah. So I actually do it in VCAL and I haven't done it for a few years because it didn't feel like I wanted to do it last year. They were a group that would have benefited, but just COVID, you know, got in the way. So this idea of harm minimization is I have this idea that at many other schools, conversations that I have with students, students might think, oh, that's, that's an inappropriate conversation to have with your teacher. But I've actually find that really harmful you know, I would rather a student come to me and say, I think I have an STD, what do I do? Then going to another 16, 17 year old who doesn't actually know, who doesn't have a background in health or isn't an adult, let's yes. be honest. Yes. I've had plenty of children, students come up to me and, you know, about pregnancy, about sex, about drug use, about you name it. And it's awkward. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's like, okay, this is really uncomfortable. But, you know, that you'd rather that they talk to you about it. And, you know, this idea of harm minimization is it's not, you know, abstinence doesn't work. I mean, for how many years have they told teenagers not to have sex? Mm. For all Mm. of eternity. Like, it doesn't work. They're going to do it. And the same goes with drugs. Do I, I don't want my kids taking drugs, of course. You know, it's detrimental to their health and well-being. But it happens. And I've had some conversations which some people might think, wow, you really said that to a student? Don't you think that's encouraging? And I say, well, no, because I'm happy to use this example. A student was openly talking to me about a party that was happening on the weekend. And they're like, oh, sometimes I feel like you have to take 
drugs just to keep up with everyone. This is not just a, a this wasn't a school party. Like this was yeah. someone else's yeah. party. Elsewhere. And, you know, and I said, well, what does that look like for you? And they told me the amount of drugs that they had purchased for the weekend. And I actually said, well, how about you leave half of that at home and you just mm. take the other half with you? Now, I know that's probably quite controversial for a lot of people. And again, I really want to reiterate, I do not encourage drug use. Mm. But what I actually did was allowed them to feel safe talking to me about it. And I was also able to implement safer drug taking practices. You know, there's, I've talked about this idea of how to sesh safely. There's this really cool kind of series. I think it's an, a British series on dosages that are essentially not going to kill you because what harm minimization does and you know the department of education also talks about a harm minimization approach so i feel okay doing that talking about that and that student went to that party with a much safer amount with them mm. and i felt better knowing that they had actually confided in me rather than someone else saying oh you'll be right or oh come on just bring it all you know which happens. And I think we need to really acknowledge that it's going to happen. Pretending that teenagers aren't going to do naughty things. I use, you know, inverted Yeah, in air quotes, yeah. That's just unrealistic. So I'm a big believer in that. And, you know, I want students to feel comfortable. I want them to also feel that they can tell me something and I'm not going to call home about it. And there's certain things like, yeah, I've, I've addressed some topics which are pretty full on. There's been times where I've emailed home and say, if anyone has a problem with this, please let me know. Here's my rationale. Here's my discussions. But other times, no. And as someone who came from a strict sort of upbringing, I also would have felt nervous or uncomfortable, you know, if I was drinking underage. Yes. And, and it would have been good to have someone to say, look, you know, don't take the whole straight bottle of vodka like that's not going to end well for you. You know, definitely my mum my mom was really good in that way. Like she would be like, here's an amount. Again, that's a really, that, that's the thing that we should be doing. Of course, underage drinking shouldn't be happening. I know that, but it's going to. And if we actually empower young people to think safely about the risk-taking behaviours, they're actually more likely to act safely. Mm. And, you know, it's that idea, like my mum would always say, I don't care what you have done. If you are in trouble, call me. And as a teenager, I didn't believe that if I called, I wouldn't get in trouble. Yeah. I believe she'd pick me up and, you know, she wouldn't yell at me then and there, of course. But one part of you always believes, well, you'll get grounded or you'll do whatever. And, you know, as you probably should in many instances. But it's really good to have an adult, like I've said before elsewhere, I or teachers may be the only responsible adult in a student's life outside of their parents. And for some kids, maybe the only. Mm. And why not be someone that they can go to and safely say, this is what I think, I want to know about this, what do I do? And that's this form of trust because they often think teachers are people who they can't be open with that stuff about and for them to do that that only empowers them to make safer decisions mm. I've always said to students 
if they're having conversations with me that I know I'm not equipped to deal with, yeah. I don't necessarily say I'll call home, but I'll say you've now given me this information that I can't keep by myself. So I'll never do anything without telling them, but I'll say I need to take this to wellbeing. I need to yeah. send you here. I need to ensure that you get the help from somebody who is qualified. And I, w- I want to say that as a protection for teachers that, yeah. you know, if you are not qualified and it is a problem that has some really serious consequences and situational issues, 100% refer it on. That reference doesn't necessarily have to be a call home. I think that that's something that you need to understand and be aware of, speak to people at school as to what the policy is. But you're right. The thing is, is that we are often a sounding board as an adult before the actual adult with the influence gets that information, whether that's a parent or a grandparent or whatever. And also, as you say, oftentimes conversations like that where they're saying, I don't feel comfortable. It's because they can't tell their friends because they'll be ostracized in some way. And so they actually need the permission from somebody else. And that's again, such a teenage thing, needing permission and validation. And wouldn't it be better to get that validation from someone who's more adult, more caring, more responsible than another 15 year old that doesn't really care and just wants you to have a good time at a party and cares about what it looks like rather than your own mental health. So Look, it's a really interesting, touchy subject. I would like to reiterate that you are at a senior school, which does <laughs> yeah. change the conversation a lot. Yeah. Um, Look, I'm not, I'm not giving this advice to you sevens, you know. That, yeah. yeah, thank you for doing that because I think that is important and that's sort of the context. And it's interesting you mention it because I have just written a, like an article for the Wine with Teacher magazine. I don't mm. know when it's coming up, but it's essentially about what to do when a student either discloses something or confides yeah. in in something that you like maybe if you feel like you can't handle it like what to do or you know how to sort of be in those situations so yeah it, it it's true and of course like with different age groups it's yeah. going to be different you know primary teachers are very unlikely to have to be having harm minimization about sex and drugs and alcohol yes. Yes. You would really hope not. But high school teachers, it's a different story. And look, you're seven to nine, probably I'd be having a different conversation Mm. or I'd be saying it differently. But at the end of the day, we never want to shame kids about anything because the minute they're ashamed of what they're doing is when they confide in the wrong people and they start hiding it. You never, ever want kids to be hiding these risky behaviours because what it means is that they're not getting any guidance. Yes. And I think, as you said, it is touchy, it is controversial, but harm minimization is a recommendation of most departments and, you know, most places that really know about young people. And I encourage people to you know, they're welcome to speak to me. They're, you know, they're welcome to reach out to me. You know, I'm always happy to answer those types of questions. You know, this is like my bread and butter. You know, before I was as a teacher, um, I was working with high risk adolescents. And I know some Mm. people don't like the term high risk, but they truly were. Yes. And this is my passion. And this is the main thing that I really love and and love to do is, and a part of that is just to be a safe person. Yes. And it might be a bit uncomfortable. And look, even if you haven't worked in that field or you don't actually know too much about 
a lot of that stuff, you probably know more than a 16 year old. Yes. <laughs> and you've got a, you know, you've got, you've got resources, whether it's not phone numbers, other people, you've also got life experience, reach out to those resources and to people that do know and be that safe person because it will only help kids and it will only get them to truly think about what they're actually doing. This is a reality for every high school teacher. I've had certainly uncomfortable conversations before where I'm like, I don't know if I'm saying the right thing right now. And the thing is, is that I'm sure that there are graduates listening. This will happen. It will happen. You will have someone come to you at some point, whether you want it or not, telling you something that you think, okay, what is my responsibility here? And it is really important to understand that A, you've created a safe space for that student to come and speak to you. So that is a really valuable thing that you've done. But B, there is a responsibility attached to that information now, whether that is giving guidance, whether that is forwarding on, whether that is offering a resource but also understanding the home life and the consequences that could come from getting certain people involved mm-hmm. is really important, as you've just said. But no, for sure. I'd love to ask you about your thoughts on the equality in education. Yeah. So, I mean, it doesn't exist. And, you know, whether that is funding, whether it's just, you know, social inequalities, it just doesn't exist and I, and I actually don't think it can exist or ever will exist, unfortunately. I have this idea of equity and what that is is different from equality. So equity is about providing more resources or more help or funding or whatever to those who are more disadvantaged. So there's two examples of where I've seen equity put into not practice as such, but it gives people a good understanding of the difference between equality and equity because many people go, oh, this particular group, they get so much more than we do. Isn't it supposed to be equality? And you're like, well, sure. Equality is everyone having the same thing, but no one starts with the same thing. No one starts with the same opportunities. So therefore equality does not exist. In order for equality to be achieved, you need to have equity. So there's this image that I absolutely love and there's these three people watching like a baseball game or something. There's a really tall person looking over the fence. There's a medium-sized person looking over the fence and they can see the game, but not obviously as much as the tall person. And then there's a very small person who actually can't see over the fence at all. In the image adjacent to that, they're all standing on a box. So the tall person is able to see even more Mm. and the medium person is able to maybe see over the fence, but the the small person actually still can't see over the fence. And that's that idea of equity. They've all been given a box. Equality, you mean? Same opportunity, but the outcome is different Mm -hmm. because of what they started with. Mm. In the image adjacent, the tall person has no box to stand on, but can still see the game very clearly. The middle person has one box and can see the game clearly and is actually to the level of the tall person. And the small person stands on two boxes and is then again at the level of the other two people. 
And that's that idea of equity where you give someone who has less more than others so they actually then have the same Mm. or they have an equal opportunities in that instance to see the game. Mm. The other example, which I'll, I'll happily send you if I can find the link, it's quite an old video you know it's a whatever we get i'll put in the show notes yeah yeah i'll i'll find that so it's like a I imagine some sort of college coach of some variety i don't know I, I think they're all in college in the united states and there's a group of students and he said right we're all going to have a race to the for this a hundred dollar bill and he holds it and they're like what and he's like and if you get here first you can have it so he's like ready They'll get ready to run. He's like, oh, sorry, before we start, if both of your parents are together, take a step forward, you know, and you get a few, a number of kids stepping forward. Many kids don't. If you, if you've had a consistent father figure in your life, step forward, right? If both of your parents finished high school, step forward. If one of your parents finished high school or at least one step forward, if you've never had to work a job to pay for the bills in your family home, step forward, you know, and all of these yeah. things that privileged young people have and disadvantaged young people don't have, they all step forward and you get, you know, he's asked a bunch of questions and at the end he goes, all right, now essentially run to get the note. Yeah. And of course the kid right at the front gets the note. And there are some questions about race and about other things that come into it as well. Um, And it's really powerful because he says, I've just shown you what it looks like to be privileged Mm. and how hard the people at the back had to work to run to to get the note because they didn't have all these advantages in life that you have. I'm even getting goosebumps thinking about it. It's such a powerful video because it it's something you wouldn't actually think of. You know, we, we talk about privilege and we talk about that type of thing, but it visually puts it into perspective of how little you need to do when you are privileged to get to just the level that others, you know, how much those people at the back had to do. Yes. I'm pretty sure there were some kids who didn't even step forward once. Mm. Yeah, there would have been for sure. Really sad. And you could see I felt so bad for them. And, and I've always wanted to do it in my sociology class, but I've always been a bit cautious of, you know, I don't want to call people out or make them feel uncomfortable. But I think it's a really good demonstration of inequality and it can help show why equity is so important. I love that. And I think that there's so many people out there thinking, well, why do they get, and I say that in the air quotes, in whatever particular group you want to refer that to, why do they get that? Why didn't I get that? Why didn't I yeah. get that leg up and they do. And I think you've explained that beautifully. And the quote that I've always loved around privilege is if you've had to learn about it rather than experience it, there's privilege there. And usually it's to do with racism. If you have to learn what racism is and haven't actually experienced somebody being racist to you, well then there's, there's certainly white privilege or privilege there. And that's always stuck with me too, because there's so many things that, you know, as a white female, that I've had to learn about. I haven't experienced directly. And it's certainly very confronting to know that you are in a privileged position because it means that you've missed out on this whole perspective that so many people have experienced and that you have to be much more open-minded. Yeah. And I, and I think it also goes for, you know, I actually hadn't heard that quote before. So that's really interesting because the same goes, you know, for being a woman, mm. um, for being in the queer community, yes, for 
having a disability. There's so many things that, yeah, like, and you think, okay, I've had to learn about that. But, you know, also there'll be other things that you you maybe have experienced that's not necessarily racism but yes yeah that's the example I'm using but you're right yeah yeah but I you know Grant I think it's very much appropriate considering that we're talking on January 26th yes um, isn't it yeah let's talk about this because we did a live together and we were both talking a lot about how we really wanted to educate global citizens, not just kids that can tick an academic box. So we are speaking on the 26th of January. So talk to me about the kinds of things you would like to see come into the curriculum that obviously acknowledge Indigenous culture. It's great in sociology. There's a whole area of study on Australian Indigenous culture. It's taught me so much. And I I always get cautious of speaking publicly about Indigenous perspectives, you know, it is really important to not be trying to speak on behalf of Indigenous people and allowing the Indigenous perspective to be told from the Indigenous perspective. But I think teachers are in a great opportunity where if we can listen and learn, and listen is the key thing there, you know, I follow some truly incredible Indigenous accounts on Instagram and I just love to listen Mm. and you know I can't relay the message from an experience point of view Mm. I can tell the stories of you know what I've seen what I've heard also perhaps views that I and misconceptions that I once had Mm. due to a lack of education in my schooling and also particularly where I'm originally from and and places that I've lived before where there are some really terrible opinions about Indigenous people that, you know, when you're a young kid and you hear that, like you trust what the adults are telling you. And, you know, I've had uh, some mortifying conversations where I thought I was being accepting and open-minded and, and wanting to listen, but I'd, I'd said something that was actually fundamentally rude and disrespectful. And it, and it just shows how ingrained many of the things that we learn about Indigenous culture and the history of this country actually are. And, you know, I sometimes like lie awake thinking like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that. But in some ways I'm glad because it's a reminder to me that I still have much to learn and that it lights that fire under me to say, I want to do more for my students and I want my students to leave my classroom and leave the year knowing more than they did before and knowing more than I ever knew at that age. And not tokenistic things, which is what we were talking about in the live stream, Yeah, you know, not learning about stories or painting or anything like that really listening from the Indigenous perspective, from the point of view. And, you know, I'm, I'm involved with an organisation that I meet with regularly and I love getting them in to speak to my students and letting them ask questions. And there's sometimes where I'm like, they'll ask a question and I just think, oh, that's so embarrassing. And I feel, I'm like, I hope that person isn't offended. But from what one of the guests said to me, he's like, every question is a step forward to better learning and better understanding. And, you know, unfortunately, many Indigenous people are 
well, all Indigenous people are used to those views. Mm. And I guess the difference is there's a difference between having those views and not asking anything else and having those views and asking and then and learning and changing. So mm. my hope is that I would love the department to invest more money in teacher training. Mm. And that goes, you know, Australia-wide. Things down to Indigenous languages. Like there are actually, there's a primary school in the northern suburbs. I can't remember which one it is. Around the Northcote area, I think. And their language is Indigenous, is an Indigenous language. They don't do Italian or yeah, right. Mandarin or anything like that. And I think that's cool. And I, lo- I learn Spanish and I, I love the idea of learning languages. I think way more time should be spent. But, you know, Indigenous studies or Australian Indigenous culture needs to be like a subject as much as maths and English is because it, it's our first people. It's the people that the land that we were born on, it, it belongs to them and they preserved it for 60,000 years. And I have so much respect for Indigenous culture and the, the atrocities that have been put onto Indigenous people, both in the past and to the present day. And where's that education? Where is that? And I know it's in the curriculum. Mm. I know it is. And I know many teachers nowadays are trying more and more to integrate it. And that's amazing. But it needs to be there. And mm. it would be, you know, why is it not a program run and led and integrated by Indigenous people for everyone, mm. you know? Like, I want to he- that- hear from that perspective. And I- I've done some training at my previous job where we were looking at the Indigenous perspectives and Indigenous kids in out-of-home care. And it was just so amazing, some of the things that I learned. And, and even down to cultural practices about being respectful. And I just got so much out of that. And, you know, we don't want teachers to feel afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, we do want them to not be saying, you know, offensive things, but teachers that are really trying to learn more because their education was subpar, Mm. where is that for us? Where's that idea of here's some building blocks for you to work on? And I just don't feel like we get that. I, I still feel like every teacher needs to go out and, Every person in Australia needs to go out and learn more. The resources are there. We have incredible Indigenous voices in this country who are, who are screaming it at us, you know, mm-hmm. not literally, but are saying, this is a problem. Mm-hmm. You need to know this. And there are still people who are ignoring that. And, you know, there's really no excuse for anyone to not know because the information is out there. Yeah, I think you've hit two really big points. The fact is that we either say something, say it wrong, get shamed, and then go back into a box, or we just don't say anything. And the problem with not saying anything or not asking any questions is it means that any kind of ignorant viewpoint is never, or it just it just remains valid because you never hear yeah. the other side of it. And so the biggest issue I find too as a white Australian, and also my grandparents came here from Hungary in 1950 so we value culture you know mm. that has been that has been brought here and we are so excited to be multicultural and with mm. that idea of being multicultural we believe that we don't have an Australian culture but we do we just yeah. don't yeah, seem sure. to 
give it the light and, and illuminate it the way that it should be. Yeah. But the other thing too, I think that a lot of people struggle with is the idea of assimilation and feeling as though the way that Aboriginal cultures and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want to live their life, it's very confronting to a more traditional conservative way of life, which is, you know, you get educated, you go to university, you get a job, you get a house, you you create commitment and stability. And I think that rather than accepting, it's confronting and misunderstood that other people don't want to live that life, mm-hmm. you know, and the entire government systems, whatever is set up to support a particular lifestyle. Even the fact that you know, gay marriage was only recently passed. I mean, the big issue about that, and I spoke to my friend who was a lawyer, was the fact that homosexual queer couples lived together a whole life and didn't get the same rights as a married couple when one of them passed away. I mean, that's a huge problem. And so there's so much set up for a particular way of life that Mm. if you don't live that life, we don't understand or Mm. there isn't the willingness to understand which i think is a big problem and so if we don't understand the only way to do that is to actually hear from the people that are living Mm. a different life or have different values or see the world a different way because if i don't live that life i can't explain it i have to hear it from somebody else yeah and and there's really I, i definitely agree and there's there's a page I follow. I just got the name up now. Um, I'll put all of this in the show notes. Send me all the things, Maddie. I will, yeah. Gayala Bales. She's, I hope I'm saying that right. She's an Indigenous woman and she's brilliant. There was one video, I believe, that she was talking about. Yes, you know, many Indigenous people are going, I want to live, you know, that sort of traditional lifestyle in their culture. Mm. But she also was talking about, that Aboriginal people should also be taking advantage of education and the, the other opportunities that there are here. And that's also brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to speak for the video because I can't remember exactly what was being said, but it was a really yeah. interesting video because it was kind of saying on the opposite end, there are also many Indigenous people that actually want to live yes. this lifestyle and they're happy living this lifestyle, but that doesn't change the, you know, racism that they face or the many other issues, mm. the myriad of issues that are, that are in this country with that lack of acknowledgement or, you know, oh, yeah. We could, we could really just talk about it for so long and it becomes really infuriating. But the way I've been able to sort of channel that is I've found, especially through the teacher gram, I found really incredible Indigenous perspectives and voices. And, and yeah, as I mentioned before, listen, Mm. you know, and listen to, I'm obviously not getting that education through my work as I should be. And as we all should be. So I'm going out and finding out that information. And I'm hearing that from an Indigenous perspective and from people who are living it yeah it's one of the reasons I really love teaching sociology Mm. it's taught me so much you know even down to the history how was I you know 23 or something before I knew properly about the protection and segregation policies or you know this the true extent of the assimilation policies not just the name this stolen generation like how was that not properly taught in schools 
And yeah, that's, for me, that's where I want education to go. I want that to be a norm. I want Indigenous people to be consulted, as I'm sure, you know, Indigenous people would want that. And, you know, a really important thing from, you know, what I've learned in sociology is really about that there's so many different languages and cultures that it's not grouping all Indigenous Australians together and that the education that a school is learning, you know, it really should be about the people whose land that they're on. Mm. And that's a part of that acknowledgement and reconciliation, you know, that Indigenous culture is not homogenous. There are so many different languages, cultural practices, people groups, it's everything. Mm. And, and that, yeah, that would, that's so important. I'd love to ask you about some of the biggest lessons you've ever learned in life. One of the number one lessons, and this applies to both personal and to being a teacher, is some people are going to love you and some people are not going to like you. And that's all. It doesn't matter who you try and be. That's just always going to be the case. I mean, there seems to be people, I swear, you know, everyone loves them. And, but, you know, you, you can't please everyone. And that comes with students. That comes with people in your life, you know. And I know that and I'm still someone who's guilty of feeling anxious when people are upset with me. I'm one of those people where I want to be outspoken and controversial and fiery, but I also don't want people to get upset about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. myself, that's, a hard, that's a hard line to tread, Maddie. <laughs> yeah, it really is, you know, but like it's, it's about becoming more comfortable with being that type of a person and knowing you're going to rub people the wrong way. I've definitely become more comfortable with it as a teacher Sometimes it's hard. I often have issues with female students, not on a large scale, but because I'm very abrasive Mm. and I say it how it is, sometimes that can be, there can be a clash of personality, particularly when they are also strong and fiery and Mm -hmm. very similar to me. Yeah. And I had a bit of a rough goal that last year. Some of those kids came around, others didn't. And that's, you know, it, it hurts because you think you know you know that they don't like you you know that they're talking about you in a negative way but you know I have to go well I'm not going to change like I'm not going to be softer and more gently spoken because that's not me and it won't last Mm. that sort of consistency where it's like well I sure I might be that one day but that facade will go yes yes sitting with the fact that not everyone is going to like you but Someone does. And as long as you like who you are, that's important. And you'll attract the people that you need to have in your life anyway, because if you create friendships based on a false version of yourself, well, yeah. how strong and how real is that friendship really? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, and I, I'm trying to think if there's, I'm sure there's so many life lessons I've learned. Probably the other one would be go out and enjoy your life. I did the go straight to uni, muck around, did a little bit of travel when I finished my psych degree, then did my teaching qualification, then went into like a social work role. And I had this really terrible turn of events. There were some really quite significant things that happened in my life. And I lost about three really important people um, Mm. in the space of six months. I'm sorry. 
oh thank yeah that's okay I mean you know these things happen mm. and I just remember sitting at my desk and I went ah oh, no nah. I haven't done any of near, nearly any of the things that I wanted to do and I walked into my manager's office and I cried of course and I just mm. said I can't do this mm. I need to go out and find happiness and I need to go out and enjoy myself. And he actually offered to hold my position for him, bless him. But mm. I think I ended up associate. So the day I had got that job, someone had passed away. In the middle of it, someone had passed away. And then my final day, my grandfather actually passed away as well. So, mm. so he didn't pass away before I had made that decision. But it, when it came to that, I was just like, Nah, I can't go back. You know what I mean? Yes. Like it felt, I loved the job. It was an amazing job. And I really, I met some amazing people and I've learned so much from it. But for me, I was like, oh, it, oh, it almost felt tainted in a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I understand. I was just like, it was blocked with nothing but personal tragedy and loss and grief. And so, you know, I went overseas for, I think it was like a hundred days or four months or something like that. And I, I'm a planner and I planned a lot, but, you know, I didn't plan the money situation that well. I went into debt. I owed, you know, my partner money, which was fine. Like he just, you know, and in the middle of the trip, I stressed about money, but that's fine. And it was the most amazing experience. I met the most amazing people and I came back and I got my job as a teacher and I haven't looked back, you know, and don't get me wrong. Like I still wanted to keep traveling. I was supposed to go last year. My advice is just just go. And even if you've got a good thing going at your school, it's okay to take a sabbatical and go for a year or whatever. Like, you know, the school might not like it and they may not approve it. Well, you are what's important. Mm. And a girl that I know, she had a great job as a teacher and she loved the school, but she just was like, I want to go overseas for a year. And she quit her job and she's working at a different school. And she said, I don't love the school as much. But she's like, she wouldn't change it for anything. Mm. So, you know, and, and it's not about travel. My thing is travel. Yeah. But other people, it might be, I don't know, building a house, you know, actually building it yourself mm. or going and learning to be a yoga instructor. I'm not sure what mm. it is, but mm. feel free to take that time after uni, during uni, during the middle of the semester, if that's where your head's at. Mm whilst you're doing your job, like now's the time, like your body can handle it Yeah. if you're young. And even for people who maybe aren't in their twenties or thirties, like still, I mean, you know, I know it's hard. I don't have any kids and I haven't bought a house yet. And, you know, I don't really, I have a job, um, <laughs> but that's, you know, it's pretty easy yeah. to go and yeah. someone look up for, for a little bit, but yeah, when you can just, just do it because you will get to a point, you know, I have moments where I'm like, oh, I wish I had have done this. Yeah. And I wish someone had have said, don't worry about finishing uni right now. Mm. And I wish I did so many things. And I wish someone had have said, don't worry about staying at uni. Like you'll mm. come back. And I think there is a bit of a fear that you won't come back or, or that you, you know, I know I was like, oh, I can't not have a job straight after I finish uni because they'll wonder what I was doing. Like I had this misconception. Yeah. Such a funny thing. The stories we tell ourselves that we really believe. I'm like, that's not true. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's not. Exactly. It's not true <laughs> at all. So yeah, that, that, those are my life lessons. Yeah. Do you, what about you? I love the fact that you've said about choice. 
if you feel stuck, things don't feel right, you always have a choice. If you're saying to yourself that you don't, that's again, it's not true. You can quit a job, you can move, you can decide to change a relationship, you can put up boundaries. Whatever you want to do, it is actually at your disposal majority of the time. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. as somebody now in my mid-30s who has a mortgage, has two kids, has a job, all of those kinds of things, it is harder mm-hmm. to make those decisions in that I, I have much more to consider now. It's not as mm-hmm. flexible and easy. And so when you are in your 20s and, and you're younger and you don't have a lot of those commitments that really, and I was saying to you the other day, I don't want to say the term anchor, but it kind of is that you know, that really holds you down and you have to make big logistical decisions if you want to make any sort of shift in your twenties, you don't tend to have that. And you don't also, it takes a long time to figure out who you are too. And that's perfectly fine. Who I was at 25 is not who I am now. What I liked then I don't like now, but there are some still really fundamental things about myself that have always remained true. And so I think figuring out who you are, giving different experiences ago and I say this in hindsight because some of the things I've done were things that I didn't want to do but in retrospect were really really beneficial for me getting my, mm-hmm. me out of my comfort zone was, was really important mm-hmm. so yeah I think you're right it doesn't have to look the way that you think it has to progress yeah. is not yeah. linear you can have experiences that you think are not important that become really really important later so yeah, kind of the plan it's, you know what, I'll say it's like teaching, have a plan, but yeah. then be happy if the plan goes off track and be willing to be yeah. resilient and flexible and just kind of go with the best opportunity you can. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I like that idea of, you know, growth is not linear. Yeah. And I think, you know, and look, we're talking from the perspective of people who didn't have kids in their early twenties. For some yes. people that, you know, that's a different story. Mm. I have friends where they don't want to travel the world. Mm. Like yeah, it could look different for everybody. Like yeah. And, you know, for them it's about did they, were they able to buy this car? Were they able to renovate their house? Could they have, you know, whatever it is. But I think it's at least finding the time for yourself. That And look, for some people it might actually be working still. Mm. But different for everyone. I just think you don't want to be sitting there thinking, I wish, I wish. Because, you know, I, I can still do many things, but one of my biggest regrets is not going not going on exchange, you know, not tra- studying abroad. Mm. I wanted to do it and I chose getting a car. And, look, that was great, but I really wish I did that. Yeah. Um, and I can't do that now because I'm not going back to study ever. <laughs> yeah. I really am not. I'm not yeah. into it. Yeah, because you studied abroad, didn't you? I did, I did, yes. So I went in my fourth year of uni, I went and studied in England. So the university was located between like Manchester, Birmingham, so up north a little bit. And it was great. And I went and I did English Lit in England and I studied Shakespeare and, you know, it was great. And it was only four contact hours a week. And as a art science student, science was like each subject was between four and six contact hours. So for two two science subjects, that was 12 hours a week plus my mm-hmm. art subjects as well. So I had really big contact hours. So to go overseas and have two two-hour tutorials, that was it, 
It was amazing. Mm. So I traveled and I socialized, I lived on campus and it was an experience. And I still remember getting there, looking at this tiny dorm room and crying, thinking, what have I done? Yeah. Just before my 21st birthday. So I was away for my 21st birthday and I, within, so my, my birthday's at the end of Jan, I must've gotten there, you know, I don't know, 20th of Jan. By my birthday, I had a group of friends take me out. Oh, lovely. So yeah. I remember it was such a, I wanted to do it, but I was so scared and it was mm. one of the best things I've ever done. So I think, you know, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and knowing that you are more resilient and strong than perhaps you give yourself credit for, because you can, you, yeah, you can throw yourself into situations and they can be really amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And what, and as you said, whatever that is. Last question. What are your hopes for education in the future? I, yeah, I, th- I have one hope really. There's many, but my main one is that students and teachers will allowed to be and they'll be allowed to be who they are. I am anti-uniform at schools. I know I can see some of the benefits sometimes, you know, around oh, if you don't have the latest outfit or whatever. Um, but the idea that kids can't have the colour hair that they want or piercings or wear bright blue eyeshadow or, you know, and, and teachers can't kind of live lives outside of teaching, which there was just a woman in, I think, the UK and she was a bodybuilder and kids found her photos, but the school asked her to either take them down or she may lose her job. And I just think that's not right. I think mm-hmm. we're human beings and we don't live in a dark cupboard outside of yeah. our classes being finished. And I think teachers should be free to, you know, as we were talking about before, that harm minimization stuff, we should be free to sort of not be this strict kind of relationship that of what it always was. And we're actually mentors mm. and we have so many different roles that we play. And I think if we were given the opportunity to be that and not be so insistent on the punishment type of thing that it would be a much happier job. Um, It already, I love the job. It's already amazing, but I think that would be amazing. And yeah, the opportunity for students to be who they are, to encourage individuality and accept it. And ultimately, yeah, that's what I hope for for education in the future. I think industry is better at that, to be honest. I think that there's a lot of push for acceptance and inclusion in industry. And I think that in a way education has been dragging its feet for a long time, trying to sort of hold on to, you know, the values of the past. And I get it, but Mm. I think that, you know, it's perhaps time to be more progressive. And many teachers are afraid to, you know, even do something like this. Like I know I was way too afraid to start up an Instagram or speak yeah. openly. I'm like, oh, will I get in trouble? Will I lose my job for speaking openly? And, and we don't want that because we've got something to say and it's valuable. And, you know, I love that you do a podcast like this. I think it's great. And getting all different perspectives is really important. And same to you, Maddie. I will make sure that I put your info in the show notes because all of the IJTV series you're doing around what they don't teach us at university is very, very important because how many people do you hear get into that first year of teaching and go, what is this? I was not prepared. (laughs) 
Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all of your time and for speaking to me on a very, very important day as well. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Me too.